Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Praise the Lord. It's good to be in his house today. Good to be with all of you. It's Valentine's Day, right? Hallelujah. So I thought we'd start off a little bit with uh, a little bit of Valentine love. I, uh, I hope you take time today and remember some of the people that you love. You know, we don't always do that. Maybe that's the whole reason for Valentine's Day. And um, I stand as a uh, repentant person. I once gave a speech on why Valentine's Day was um, a joke. And uh, yeah, I was a real critic of it, absolutely. Um, but Valentine's Day is a good day to remember those that you love. I want to share with you, um, in the spirit of that, a question that was proposed to a group of kids. And this has nothing to do with the message today, so... Uh, but it was a question that was proposed to a group of kids that were ages four to eight years old. And the question they were asked was, what does it mean to love? What does love mean? And the answers are pretty profound, actually. And uh, Rebecca, age eight, said this when she was asked, what does love mean? She said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandpa does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis, too. That's love. Number two, uh, Billy, age four, he answered this way. When someone loves you the, way that you, the way they say your name is different, you just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Carl, age five. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Chrissy, age six. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give any of yours, give you any of theirs. <laughs> Terry, age four. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. That's pretty profound. Danny, age eight. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. He's missing something there, but that's all right. <laughs> Bobby, age seven, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. I love that. Nikki, or Nika, Nikia, I'm sorry, age six, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. Interesting way of putting it. Noel, age seven, love is when you tell a guy that you like his shirt then he wears it every day. <laughs> Tommy, age six, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. <laughs> Elaine, age five, love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Chris, age seven, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than Robert Redford. Mary Ann, age four. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. <laughs> Lauren, age four. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> you know, can I just say something about that? That is someone who's going to go far in life because they never are playing the victim card, right? 
That's pretty amazing. I mean, they're looking at the bright side of things. I love that. They're going to go far. Karen, age seven, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) Jessica, age eight, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. And then there was a four-year-old who kind of took the cake, whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed into his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked what he had said to to the neighbor, the little boy said, nothing, I just helped him cry. Don't forget to love those that you love today. Show them tangibly in some way just how much they mean to you. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, I love you. All right, there you go. Okay, enough with this Valentine's Day stuff. (laughs) This morning, I want to continue with our series in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so far... Uh, we really haven't gotten past the first two times we see the Bible reference the Holy Spirit. And remember, this is all prior to the cross of Jesus Christ. I explained that last week. I don't want you to think that things today are like they were then. There's pivotal moments in, in histor- history that uh, it changes the way that we, uh, we, we that it changes the way the Holy Spirit deals with us and we respond to him. Um, and that's important in the midst of all of this that we're talking about today and in this series. But uh, in Genesis 1-2, we saw that the uh, Spirit, or Ruach, and I make you say this all the time, I have been making you say this every week, say Ruach. Ruach. That is the Hebrew word for the Holy Spirit, or it's a word that's translated into the Holy Spirit, it's also translated into other words, but um, the Holy Spirit's the main one that we're we're focusing on. And in Genesis 1-2, we see that Ruach was hovering over the waters. This was the the Holy Spirit's activity during creation. He was hovering in a preserving, if you remember, and preparing kind of way. He was preparing and preserving the raw materials that God would soon bring to order. It was chaos he created. He hadn't brought order to him yet. He wasn't done creating yet. And so uh, there was, there was this, this hovering and this preserving and this, and this um, preparing that the Holy Spirit was doing. And then we saw in Genesis 3.8, the spirit, or ruach, described as... Uh, a cool, gentle breeze, the kind that brings refreshing and healing. We talked about this last week. And this is how the Holy Spirit's described as God approached Adam and Eve, who were experiencing shame for the first time. They just sinned, and uh, they're hiding because of their shame. They'd never experienced that before. And what does God do? He doesn't come with a hammer. He comes walking through the garden. And, and I think Pastor Jared even re- alluded to this when he was talking just a little bit ago. He was wooing them back. And it says, in the cool of the day, which, which is a descriptive, it, it's describing ruach. And so the, the description there is a gentle, cool breeze that's refreshing and brings healing. Wow, that's the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. That's what he did for Adam and Eve. I believe there was a total wooing back to him. The Spirit was wooing them back. But I also believe, and this is very important, that it did not free them from judgment. Okay? 
Very, very important. You have to understand the fact that God loves with an everlasting love. But he is the very embodiment of holiness. Everything that he is is the definition of holiness. He is so holy that sin has to be judged. It has to be. So now we come to Genesis 6-3 where ruach, which is most often interpreted spirit, breath, or wind, is used again. And it's in Genesis 6-3, so let's go there. Then Jehovah said, My spirit, that word again, ruach, must not forever be disgraced in man, holy evil as he is. I will give him 120 years to mend his ways. This is a scripture that is often misunderstood and not clearly um, or accurately interpreted from the original Hebrew. Spirit here is again ruach, that is God's Holy Spirit, not man's spirit, as in Genesis 2-7, where God breathed into him the breath of life. Okay, this is a different word. This word is, is similar to the Greek word pneuma, which is God's breath of life into man. That's different than ruach, which is his spirit, his Holy Spirit. The phrase forever be disgraced in the scripture in 6-3, forever be disgraced, is a good interpretation. It's a description of another characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Some translations use the word abide or strive with or contend with. And the core meaning of the original Hebrew word, which is deen here, so the, the Hebrew word deen, which is translated here, forever be disgraced, literally means to act as judge. To act as judge. So I, just, just to give you a, a, a little bit, we, we've seen ruach, the Holy Spirit, his character described as protective, We've seen it described as preserving. We've seen his character described as restorative, as that gentle breeze wooing us back. And now we see him as a judge. They're all characteristics of the Godhead. They're all who he is. And see, sometimes, church, it's very easy for us to look at one aspect of God and camp out there and say, well, we like that part of God. I gotta get some water. It's kind of dry in here this morning, isn't it? Is that because it's so cold? I suppose. Don't want a dry message. That's an old joke. Every time I say it, some of you give courtesy laughs, and I appreciate it. That was another one. Um, anyway, we like to camp out on certain attributes of God. And, and let me say this. If you are someone who experiences a lot of depression or experiences a lot of self-loathing or hurt or pain in, inside you, I mean, obviously, you're going to want to gravitate towards the joy of the Lord, right? You're going to want to gravitate towards the encouraging side of God. And if you're someone who doesn't really feel all that stuff, and maybe sometimes you need to feel a little convicted about sin because you're just out there doing your thing, I mean, maybe you need to gravitate a little bit more towards the other, that he is a judge, and he is holy, and he is righteous. See, I, I, I'm convinced, church, that, that sometimes we wonder, I've, I've heard this question so many times, how come all the denominations exist? And I think, I believe, that part of it, maybe a big part, is people's perceptions of God in reference to what they need. And so it divides, and we say, well, no, God is, God is this, he's this, he's this, he's this, and that's totally true, but he's also this. 
He's the one who can come in the cool of the day like a gentle healing breeze, and he's the one that can bring judgment. You understand, when they were hiding in the garden, Adam and Eve, God came to them again like that restorative, gentle, healing, cool breeze. And then he sacrificed animals to cover their shame. We talked about that last week a little bit. And then he kicked them out of the garden. Judgment still happened. It still happened. And we have to understand that. That's part of who he is. We can't get around it. We have to look at it. God is so holy that sin must be judged. And again, we're pre-Jesus, pre-cross here. Don't forget that. Genesis 6.3 is saying, and God said, I must allow my Holy Spirit, I must not allow my Holy Spirit to be disgraced by man who is sinful in nature. I will give him 120 years to shape up. Then I will send a flood and wipe them out. And this goes against some popular teaching that the verse here, that this verse is a declaration that all men are given 120 years of life on this earth. I've heard people teach this. I, heard, I know people believe this. But when you break it down to original Hebrew words, this isn't a, 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 a scripture, and I've heard this done, where preachers will put a, a slant on it a little bit, like it's a promise from God that, that man's going to live 120 years, that you're guaranteed 120 years unless you do something crazy. That is not true when you look at the original Hebrew. I'm just here to tell you, I've been studying it all week. But this statement by God, it's more of a statement of judgment. 120 years of grace, I'll give you grace for 120 years, but the point is that it would be followed by destruction, total destruction and judgment. And this is an aspect of the Holy Spirit that we need to recognize. He judges. And we live in a culture that says, don't judge me, you can't judge me. Don't judge me, don't say I'm doing anything wrong. I am my own person. And we see it integrated into all different parts of our lives. I see it all the time when I'm watching kids programs or television shows. You know, one of the, I don't want to get nasty here, but, or, or get mean or, or pick on any movie. I, I enjoyed the movie, The Greatest Showman. But there's a song, This Is Me. I get that message. But there's also this underlining thing that says, This is me, you can't judge me. I am who I am. You understand what I'm saying? God has to judge sin. He has to. Of course, God is love and he is mercy and he is grace. He's all those things, but he's just. And these people uh, back then, they, they had men like Noah and Enoch. It wasn't that they didn't have the word of God. God gave these men the words uh, his words to speak to the people and he spoke through them but sin had to be punished or grace wouldn't mean anything have you ever thought about that if sin's not punished then grace means nothing and I say that because it would be like having a court of law where no one is ever found guilty of any wrongdoing what's the point what's the point Adam and Eve again pre-cross don't confuse where we're at here. Adam and Eve had sinned. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, their relationship with God, their fellowship with him. It had totally changed. They had kids, Cain and Abel, born with their sinful natures. And we know that Cain killed his brother Abel, and evil continued to increase in the world as the generational lines grew. God's Holy Spirit 
in 6.3, it got to a point where God's Holy Spirit would not contend with or abide in or act in or on behalf of mankind forever. In other words, there seems to be some part of the Holy Spirit that had been playing in the lives of humanity in a way of, of allowing them to live for long periods of time. And as an act of judgment because of man's continual growing in their evil, God would now give them 120 years of grace before the flood, then a, a literal worldwide flood would bring destruction. And with that, man would not live as long. Man would not live as long as they had before. After the flood and the Tower of Babel, we see that Genesis ceases to deal with mankind as a whole, uh, or, or uh, as a whole, and the rest of the book is devoted to Abraham's chosen line. The Holy Spirit portrayal in the rest of the Pentateuch it deals primarily with the individual patriarchs of Israel and how the Holy Spirit dealt with those individuals and, and how those individuals infected, uh, affected an entire nation. And it would be very difficult to make a case that Abraham and Moses were not men of the Spirit. They were. God used many different men and women throughout those, uh, I don't know the, how to say this, throughout the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, right? You guys know that, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and De Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible, they were all written by Moses. And we're kinda, we've kind of looked at what the Spirit, where the Spirit was doing in that time. And of course he was with guys like Abraham and Moses and the rest of the patriarchs. For some, it was a filling of the Spirit that lasted moments. And for others, there was kind of this consistency to the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But for all of these, the coming upon them by the Spirit, uh, the, the Holy Spirit filling them or, or empowering them, it was always outward in. And it always happened as God cho chose individuals uh, to empower with his Holy Spirit for specific purposes. In other words, it wasn't available to everybody. It was only available to those that God chose. We're talking pre-cross. As we leave the Pentateuch, we come to the historical books of the Bible. These are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These are all the historical books of the Bible. And it's interesting that these historical books don't really give specific mention of the Holy Spirit until we get to the book of Judges. So the Israelites, they had Moses to lead them. Then they had Joshua. And under their, their leadership, Moses and Joshua, the Israelites flourished. They conquered the land that God had given them, but, but then Joshua passed away knowing that there was still land to be conquered. They didn't conquer everything they were supposed to conquer. And understand, again, Moses, Joshua, the patriarchs, they were, they were spirit-filled, if you will. They had the spirit come upon them, and that's what helped them lead. It helped them do the tasks that they were called to do. There were still territories that needed to be taken by the Israelites, and those that occupied those territories were supposed to be driven out. So God's word to the Israelite people was, uh, you know, drive those people out. This land is yours. I'm giving it to you. But over and over again, we see God's people settling. I want you to hear this. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say settling. I'm doing that just to make sure you're with me. Settling. We, over and over again, we see God's people settling for a little obedience, which was always followed by prosperity, a little prosperity. God wanted them to be more obedient, 
and with that he had more prosperity for them so you see this thing where they 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 became obedient to god they did what he said and they would experience this prosperity they would experience this little bit of wealth and blessing the book of judges records over and over again that the israelites who were supposed to drive out the canaanites that they conquered basically didn't go all the way with their obedience they put them to work doing menial tasks they had them chop wood they had them carry water they used them they were supposed to drive them out but they didn't they preferred to take material wealth from them instead of moving them from the very lands that they conquered full obedience would have been drive them out they didn't do it so this produced a mixture and it was a mixture of culture and a mixture of spiritual beliefs Now, this is why God, some people say, well, why would God, he's so good, why would he want to kick people off their land? First of all, these people were not good people. They were paganistic. They they were very pagan. They did not worship God in any way. And God did not want them to infect his people, his chosen people, with their beliefs and ideas. But because the Israelites were not uh, completely obedient and didn't drive them out, there was this mixture that occurred within the culture. A mixture of beliefs, a mixture of ideas, a mixture of thought, a mixture of morality. And God would bless Israel, and then because they could never seem to handle their own prosperity, they would fall back into habits that would lead them back into slavery. Whenever their prosperity increased, so did their spiritual decline. It's it's just, it's crazy when you read through the book of Judges how true that is. Their, 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 uh, their prosperity goes up, their spiritual decline, uh, uh, you know, the spirituality of the people goes down, there was a decline in spirituality, and then they would be judged. And uh, it's, it's, the older generations were so caught up in the fruits of the labor, of their own labors, that over time their, their worship of God became religious and formalized. And as I was studying this and reading this and putting this down, it was like, whoa, isn't that what we're experiencing today? I mean, it, it's like reading about America in some ways. The church in America. The faith of one generation back then became only the knowledge of the generation that followed them. And although they grew up hearing the stories of God's miracles and how he continually delivered them as people, they never knew him. This is what was going on when God decided to choose his judges. We see that even some of these judges were not without their failings, but the Holy Spirit worked in their lives in spite of them. And we see that in the church today. How many know that God uses people that aren't perfect? I'm sure not perfect. He's used me a time or two. He's used you a time or two, and I know you're not perfect either. These judges, were it was the same thing. They weren't perfect. And I think about what I just said about the nation of Israel in reference to us today. History has a way of repeating itself, church. There are certain patterns within the Bible that are fairly easy to see, and as you read through it, you're going to see them more and more. As God's people in the American church, we have come to a place where prosperity has caused us to become comfortable. Let the pastors and evangelists preach the word. We don't have to get into it ourselves. You know, the church is basically, the church, the Christian church, is basically Bible illiterate. I've talked about this with a lot of people. Some people will come to me and say, you know, could you go deeper into some things uh, once in a while? And I'm like, you know, when I do, I lose the people who are illiterate when it comes to the Bible. So how do we solve that problem in the church? Bible illiteracy, meaning 
They have no idea what it says or means. And when they get into it, they, they get bored so quick, they, they, they just shut, it, shut, the, shut the book or turn off their phone and say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I don't get it, so I'm not gonna read it. That's a sad thing. And then mixture with the world starts happening because we don't know the truth of the word of God. It's a problem. We, we hear things like, I'm saved by grace, so no need to feel like my behavior needs to change. Instead of the church affecting the world, the world has infected the church. That is very, very true. We have a generation coming up within our country that statistically doesn't really care at all about the Bible. My grandparents' generation saw the miracle working power of God. They experienced it. My parents experienced it some. My generation believes and has some faith. But the generation coming up as a whole has only heard of God. As a whole. Many have never experienced him in a powerful, tangible way. Pastor Donnie and some of his youth leaders are reading a book, and one of the statistics in it says that only 4% of teenagers today have a biblical worldview. I want you to think about that. That means we're one generation away from being godless, and we see it all over the place. The pattern here is that God's people are blessed when they are obedient. Then they become comfortable in that blessing. Then they hold on to it and even make an idol out of it. Then they grow apathetic and complacent in their faith. The spiritual decline continues down to the next generation. And then God has to step in with discipline, loving discipline, with judgment. Understand, church, God is love, but he is also just. Sin cannot go unpunished. And remember, scripturally, we are talking about pre-cross here. I know I brought it into today, but we're talking pre-cross. When I relate it today, we must remember that we're on the other side of the cross. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But Jesus dying on the cross changed mankind's access to him and their relationship with him, but it doesn't change the fact that God must still judge sin because we have been crucified with Christ. Amen? Amen? Our sin has been atoned for. Jesus paid the price. But if someone who claims to have accepted Christ keeps on sinning without any repentance, the question has to be asked at some point, did that person really accept Christ to begin with? I mean, if you understand what God has done for you through the cross today, and you live in your sin without any repentance, without any conviction, well, I can do that. It doesn't matter. Saved by grace. If I quit that, then it'll just be works. If that's the attitude, the question isn't what's right or wrong. The question is, are you saved in the first place? Because people who understand what Jesus has done for them love him so much that they would never do that. Are you you following me? There should be a desire for holiness within us. Not because we have to follow a list of rules or that God isn't faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins when we confess them to him. That, that's not the issue. It, it's, it's, he's just. And if we, if we go on sinning, I mean, do we expect grace to abound more? Because sin abounds more in our life? Understand something. I believe you can fall away from God. 
I believe it with all my heart. Or Hebrews wouldn't talk about the great apostasy where even the elect will fall away. I think we're coming up to a time in, in history where we will see the elect fall and we'll also see revival break out. It's just going to be, you know how there's this, all this wishy-washy stuff in the church right now? Can I just say it that way? You got, you got black and white, right? Black and white, right and wrong, right? That, that, we like that, right? But in the midst of black and white, there's all this gray. And it's all wish, wishy-washy. When God comes and rules, black and white's going to be very clear, and there's going to be no gray areas. I'm not talking about judging people myself or you know, pulling out the ruler to see how, how low the dress or how high the dress is when they come in the door and keeping people out of the church and, and, and running around like the more morality police pouncing on people every time they do something wrong. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about being a people who loves God so much that they don't want to do anything that even resembles sin. They don't want to get close to it. They want to run from it as far as they can. Okay, that was my little soapbox this morning. Getting back to Judges. There were 12 Judges talked about in the book of Judges. We're pre-cross again. God raised up these judges, and the Holy Spirit was certainly with them. And it seemed that God chose people who were unimportant and not well-known as his judges, or not well-known. Um, that's who he chose to be his judges. So God would be glorified, and the judge himself, right? He worked through these people. God often chooses the lowly and the despised things of this world as his workers to bring about deliverance and spiritual uh, rest restoration. And we know that's true. We know that today is true as well. Jared said something. Pastor Jared said, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I believe he said. And it's true. 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. You know, most of us in this room would probably say, yeah, I'm God choosing me is kind of God choosing the foolish things. I mean, Moses couldn't talk, right? He had to get his brother-in-law Aaron to do the talking for him. He uses lowly things to bring shame to the wise so no man can boast. These judges were called by God to rule, and in their ruling they were God's workers of deliverance. Again, there was this vicious cycle of rebellion that was in the people. God's people rebelled. God would discipline them out of his love for them. And let me just say this. When God disciplines you, there's a lot of scripture to talk about when you're disciplined by the Lord, how much he loves you. I mean, nobody likes to be disciplined, right? Nobody likes to be disciplined or chastised in any way. But out of his love for them, he disciplines them. The, the, then the people would repent. Then God would send them a judge to rule them and deliver them. Then when that judge would die, the people would rebel again. It's a vicious cycle all through Judges. All 12 Judges, we see that happening. Judge, judges 2, 16 through 21. We'll start there. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. 
Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods. Well, there's a, there's a picture for you. They hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. When it, wherever, whenever uh, the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. It's a lot of scripture to read. But you see the cycle in all that scripture. There's the cycle. One of these judges was Othaniel. Judges uh, 3, 9 through 10a says this, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, um, that that was who this guy was. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Here we see Ruach again, don't we? And once again, it's translated spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he judged. He judged. The word here is Hebrew word. Original is shafat. Shafat, actually. You've got to put the accent on the end. Shafat, which means to judge, govern, vindicate, or punish. Again, this is a characteristic of the Holy Spirit. It it was this idea of, of the Spirit judging And this was the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon these judges, to judge as ruler over, to govern and to punish. Again, I gotta say, this is pre-cross of Jesus. This is is pre-indwelled Holy Spirit given to every believer. This is pre-baptism of the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost, okay? Old Testament. God's Holy Spirit was upon Nathanael for the purpose, specific purpose, of judging the people as in ruling them. There's an aspect of judging. It wasn't like, you're condemned. It wasn't condemning. Again, when we hear that word judge in our culture, we think condemn, don't we? We think condemn. In this sense, it's more like ruling, ruling over as an advocate. They started rebelling, and the people are then made to serve Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. They cry out to God, and he hears them. And what happened was Othaniel, Othaniel, he wasn't a king during his rule as a judge. The land rested for 40 years. And it says that over and over, the land rested for 40 years. That sounds like a nice place to live, doesn't it? The land rested. How many would like... A peaceful, restful land for 40 years. That sounds pretty good to me. And that says, Othaniel died, and the cycle started all over again, of course. The people started rebellion, and, and then they were made to serve Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. They cried out to God, and he hears them. Judges 3.15, A, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised them up for, uh, raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of 
Uh, Gira, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. I like that. He was a left-handed man, right? And the fact that he was left-handed was significant, and you're going to have to read about it yourself to find out why. Um, but God used... How many ever thought that God could use a left-handed person? I mean, we got any lefties here today? We got a few of you? Okay, God can use you, sir. Ma'am, he can use you. You're left-handed. You thought he could never use you, but he can use you. Pretty awesome. Then Shamgar, another judge, is given only one verse in Judges, 331. I'm going to go through all 12 judges, so hold on to your hats. I'm not even half done yet. Some of you are putting your coats on like you're getting ready to leave. We're looking at 2 o'clock here, okay? So... But Shamgar gets one verse. It says in verse 31, chapter 3, After him was Shamgar, the son of Enath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. That's all it says about Shamgar. You know, what's an ox goad? It, it's, it's, a, it's a wooden tool about eight feet long that had a, a metal spear at the end. It's basically a spear. A lot of times on the other end, it had like a... Like a, like a a piece of metal that was flat where he could go up to the plow and, and, and actually scrape the plow off a little bit when dirt clods stuck to it. But it was a goad, and he would goad the ox with that little... It wasn't, it wasn't like a spear in the sense of being really sharp. He didn't want to goad the ox too much and have the ox get you know, hurt. But this is a simple farm tool. He killed 600 men with it. Holy Spirit was on him. And it doesn't say, it doesn't say that the Spirit came on him, but because he is listed with the rest of the judges and because he was able to kill 600 men with this farm tool, it's not hard to assume that the Holy Spirit gave him the power to do this. The cycle happens again. Rebel and then discipline, and this time in the way of Hazar conquering the people and he treated them with cruelty. The people cry out to God in repentance. God uses Deborah, the only judge who was a woman. Come on, girls. Yeah, this was a woman judge. She was also a prophetess, which is really interesting. The people would come to her as she sat under a palm tree, and the people would, they would come to her for her judgments, their problems, their issues. This was not counseling, per se, but she would listen, and she would say, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Sometimes it came out in a prophetic-type way, but she judged, and she was known all throughout Israel for her extraordinary wisdom. They knew that the Lord spoke to her. His Holy Spirit was with her. She was married to a farmer and did not neglect her duties as a wife. So she's a good wife, too. She also wasn't a warrior. She's the only judge that wasn't a warrior, which is interesting. I mean, ladies aren't necessarily warriors. They probably can be. But Deborah was not. She was not a warrior. I mean, how many have seen Wonder Woman? Those are some warriors, right? <laughs> That's Hollywood, though. But even though she wasn't a warrior, Barak, when he went out to defeat Jabin's army, which she said, hey, this army's coming, you need to go defeat him. He said, I'm not going out there without you. She wasn't a warrior, though. But I'm not going out there without you. And she asked, he asked her to come along. The warrior didn't want to go into battle without Deborah and her wisdom right beside him. It's pretty interesting. Deborah's rule as a judge resulted in the land resting for 40 years. 
Then the cycle starts over again, and God raises up another judge, Gideon. Gideon is called by God in a bit more spectacular way. Go home and read it, church, Judges chapter 6. In verse 34 of chapter 6, we see the word ruach again. Judges 6, 34. But the spirit, there's that word, of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. Abizrites. The Holy Spirit clothed Gideon to do what he had to do. Clothed here means came upon. So again, we see this Holy Spirit, ruach, coming upon the judge, Gideon. And he did that with a purpose to, that, that God had for him, purposes to, serve, to, to make that happen. So he needed the Spirit to carry out what God was calling him to do. It's interesting. That sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Really. Don't we need the Holy Spirit to carry out what God has called us to do? God would pick these men. And here's the big difference. As you go through this, you realize these are the same words being used. And even though this is pre-cross and we're on the other side of the cross, the real difference here is that those people were specifically picked by God and there was only a handful of them. Twelve. For all those years that are mentioned in the Bible, we have a whole church full of people right here, don't we? And on this side of the cross, we can all be filled with the Holy Spirit to do what God has called us to do. I mean, that's the difference. We have access, all of us. And we'll get into that. The Holy Spirit now dwells in every believer, and anyone who desires to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is a baptism of power, by the way, has the opportunity to be immersed in him. You know, not much is known about, about the, the, the next six judges mentioned in Scripture. Tola, Jer, Jeph, Jephthah, Ibz, I, I can't even say it, Ibzan, Ilan, Abdon, they were all worthy to be listed, and it's important that their names are in there. But, and the Holy Spirit is surely, it was surely with them and even upon them as they judged and ruled over Israel. Of these six, it is said specifically that the Holy Spirit came upon Jephthah. Judges eleven twenty nine, when the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to the Mizbah of Gilead and from Mizbah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And, and again, uh, it, it's important that I, I remind you that these were not kings. Uh, these were 11 men and one woman that the Holy Spirit came upon, upon for them to do what was needed to be done. They were almost always lowly people again, the most unlikely for God to use, but isn't that just like all of us? I keep saying that over and over, but I, I'm drilling that point home to you today. Then we come to the last judge and possibly the most well-known. Samson. How many like Samson? And you should check out uh, chapter 13 of Judges. Write that down and read about how Samson was conceived. Does it, does it remind you the whole story of, of that? Does it remind you of any other stories of the Bible? That's a good question to ask yourself. Go home and read it. It's awesome. Judges 13, 25a, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Here we see Ruach again. The Holy Spirit began to stir. So what was the Spirit doing? It was stirring him. Other versions say move in him. And these phrases are interpreted from the original word uh, paam. Paam. This word means to thrust, impel, push, or beat persistently. I love that. I think it probably we could use the word unction. 
the Holy Spirit pushed him and impelled him. It gave him the thrust and the drive to do what he was called to do. It gave him unction. I think a good New Testament comparison would be when Peter and John were brought before the religious officials and told to, to not speak any longer in the name of Jesus. In Acts 4, 19 through, uh, 19 through 21, it says, But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than man, you must judge, for we cannot help but speak. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. You see, the same Holy Spirit church that came upon certain individuals in the Old Testament came upon those in the New Testament. And yes, it was a bit different. Only certain individuals were given the gift in the Old but in the new, we all have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. We read these stories and we're like, wow, God moved. He moved on them. And I'm, as I was reading this, I was reminded that, that, that God can move with his spirit upon us in the same way. In the same way. Judges 14, 6a, just, just to give you a couple more here. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson, on him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore a lion into pieces as one tears a young goat. The Spirit of the Lord. That's a protective thing there, but it rushed on him. Some versions say it mightily came upon him. Either is a good interpretation of the original Hebrew word. In Judges 14, 19, the word of God says of Samson that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It says in Judges 15, 14 that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Samson is recorded a lot in the book of Judges as the Spirit coming upon him. I love what Stanley Horton, he's one of my favorite Pentecostal theologians, this is what he says of these judges. When these men and women were aroused, moved, and filled by the Spirit of the Lord, they turned the hearts of the people to God, led them to victory, and inspired them to serve the Lord. The judges, then, were not simply national heroes, nor did they make any attempts to retain their power or, or, or found a dynasty. They weren't trying to become kings. They weren't building their kingdoms. They were just men and a woman, these judges, who really, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, when, they, when the Spirit was put upon them, when the Spirit came upon them, when it rushed upon them mightily, all the different things that we've said today, these few people turned their entire nation around time and time again. And God used one man or, or, or a woman at a time to completely change the spiritual direction of entire nations. That's significant for us to look at. And what's, what caused them to do that? Was it their gifts? Was it their talents? Was it their abilities? Was it their station in life? No, none of that is true. The only thing that's different, the only thing said about these people that gave them the ability to do it is that the Holy Spirit, Ruach, came upon them. Came upon them. And they were successful because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The Holy Spirit came upon them. I, I said this already, but in this one church, folks, we have more than 12 people. Maybe I have to get up my toes. We have more than 12 people. And all of us have access to the Holy Spirit. When you accept Christ, he indwells inside of you. And I said previous, you might not even caught it, but I said previous that all of those 
fillings are coming upon was all from the outside in. That happens to us when we get saved. We get infilled with the Holy Spirit. He indwells inside of us. And so now it's like an outward thing that from the inside out, we have that going on. If we tap into it, if we walk in it, if we hear his voice and are obedient. I, I marvel at the church and, and what it tries to do sometimes when things get tough. I, I believe in doing what we have to do politically. I believe that's right. I get that. I think God calls people to that. But honestly, politics will never change this nation around. Hear me, church. It will not do it. Your efforts in politics aren't necessarily going to do it, even though there has to be a group of people holding the line. I get that. But God's church, the church of Jesus Christ today, has to pray. They have to walk in the power of the Spirit. That's how it changes. Well, how does that change it? Let your faith be built up. These people, these judges... Had the Holy Spirit on them, their nation was changed. It's no different today. In fact, it should even be easier because we all have access to the power. And as we continue to um, talk about the third person of the Trinity, I want you to start seeking him. My time's up, I'm closing right now. I want you to start seeking the Holy Spirit. I want you to open your heart to him and his leading. He's not spooky. He's the Holy Spirit of Christ. He, he's part of the Godhead. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's our advocate, our helper. I said the word last week, paraclete. Our advocate. And not just for our own personal lives, which, praise God, he's there for our personal lives. But in the way as a calling to this dry and thirsty land that we live in. God is gonna raise up people who are powerful in the spirit to do great and mighty things. I don't wanna miss that train. You say, well, God's gonna do what he does. I, I, I don't know how I can... You can't earn any of that. But I believe you can posture yourself to be used of the Spirit in a greater capacity. Posturing yourself, making sure you're prayed up, making sure you're in the Word, making sure your, your intimacy level with Jesus is on point. It's easy to miss Him when we're distracted by all the things of this world. Let's pray. In fact, this morning, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to have Pastor Jared come up and pray in closing. Would you, my friend? You can come up on the platform if you want. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this word this morning. Thank you, God, that, uh, Lord, you've empowered us. God, you have not kept from us your Holy Spirit, but God, you gave us the very best when you gave us the Holy Spirit. So God, in that same spirit, Lord, that you gave the judges, Lord, send us out today to go change the world. God, if 12 of them 
could change a nation for hundreds of years, Lord, I can't imagine what hundreds of us could do who have that Holy Spirit, not just sometimes when we need it, but all the time indwelling in us. And so, Lord, I pray that you come upon every single individual in this place. God, as we go out from here and go into our mission field, empower us, God, to give us the tools and the power that you have available, Lord, so that we can see people reach for you and change for you. And Lord, as Pastor Barry said, one by one, change this nation for you. God, I thank you that you've called us to a great vision. And God, that you've given us areas and people in our circle of influence that we can touch like nobody else can. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit so we have the words. God, give us the power at our disposal, Lord, so that we can see miracles flow through our hands and our feet. God, as we go out into your world and, uh, and reach people for you. Jesus, we love you. We give you thanks. Bless everybody in this place. In Jesus' name, and we say amen. Amen. Have an incredible week this week. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.